Ski, shoot, repeat. Welcome to Biathlon Backstories. Welcome to episode 17 of Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast hosted by Lizzie Boyle. This one's called A First Time for Everything. This will be our first out-of-season adventure together, and it's the first of a new series called Biathlon Backstories. During this off-season, I'll be looking back to specific races in biathlon history to give you a flavour of the cultural, political and sporting zeitgeist of the time. I'll also be watching the races online, and will encourage you to do the same. Check skishootrepeat.podbean.com or at skishootrepeat on Twitter to look for links to the race videos. And then you can recreate the world of that time and share your thoughts on the race too. A caveat before we start. Sometimes I'll be able to point you to videos of full races, but sometimes we'll only have selections of highlights to work from as we explore races from the past. You can't always predict what will have been recorded, stored or digitised, so this is a bit of a treasure hunt for me too. We're going to start with a highlight reel, but it feels like an important one. Now I told a bit of the story of this in a previous episode of Ski Shoot Repeat, but now we can go a little deeper, put the race in context and explore some actual footage. Yes, we're going to start this adventure right back at the beginning, with the first Biathlon World Championships held in Saalfeld and Austria in March 1958. Now the video that accompanies this episode can be found at tinyurl.com slash biathlon1958. That's tinyurl.com slash biathlon1958. You can also search for it on YouTube. Um, simply search Biathlon 1958 or in 1958 and look for a video that's been uploaded by Lucio Ceruti. But let's go back to 1958. There's so much about that time that we don't recognise now, but so much that we do. It's still an era of post-war reconstruction in much of Europe, but with American money, companies and influences pouring in. The American dream is alive and well and being lived out around jukeboxes, bottles of coke and labour-saving domestic appliances wherever you look. Western Europe is starting to unite more closely. The Treaty of Rome in 1957 had brought France, West Germany, Italy and the Benelux countries together in closer economic cooperation. And there were partnerships forming around energy, agriculture, labour and transport. This was part of civilian response to the Great Division of Europe. The Iron Curtain was firmly down across Europe, and the lives of Eastern and Western Europeans were dramatically different. At this point, we're three years or so after the death of Stalin, and the Soviet leadership has been in a period of wrangling and infighting about who would run the country. Around the time of our race, Nikita Khrushchev is asserting control over his rivals and is set to become Premier of the Soviet Union. This period is known as the Khrushchev Thaw, a time when Khrushchev was trying to move away from the history of the Stalin period and towards something a bit more open. There were large-scale festivals of culture, music concerts, film festivals and sporting occasions. Khrushchev himself had spoken out against Stalin's repressive actions, 
And one of the consequences of this was a simmering of rebelliousness in some of the Soviet client states in Eastern Europe. An openness to wider influences from the West led to some nations starting to think more seriously about their own futures and to start to desire aspects of a freer lifestyle. Urges that the Soviet Union was quick to quash when the time came. Further west, Fidel Castro's Cuban rebels were starting to build up steam, whilst the UK saw the launch of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. War might be cold, but it could still be deadly. As well as looking east and west, in 1958 we were also looking up. The Soviets had taken an early lead in the space race, successfully launching Sputnik, the first satellite, whilst American efforts burned up on the launch pad. Laika the dog made it off planet Earth on her short but significant journey into orbit. Space carried with it the idea of freedom, and back on Earth freedom was coming with the real age of the car. Motorways and suspension bridges were being built across Europe. The Fiat 500 that we can still recognise today was launched in Italy, and we had the Volkswagen Carmen Gear and the Citroen DS rolling off production lines too. Helping you get from A to B faster was the new Boeing 707, which flew its first test flights in late 1957, before coming into transatlantic service later in 1958. 1958 would be the first year when more people travelled over the Atlantic by plane than by ship. It would also be the year when the Manchester United team plane crashed in bad wintry weather near Munich, casting a long shadow over the football season and the city. In the world of science, lasers were a new and exciting thing, and researcher Catherine Montague proved the existence of dopamine in the human brain, leading to a long line of recommendations how to get a dopamine hit, including hitting your targets on a range or pushing publish on the latest issue of your podcast. Elvis was making movies and had just had his 10th number one hit in just 21 months. We're into peak Elvis era, Jailhouse Rock, all shook up, the real emergence of his rock and roll sound from skiffle and blues. Things were about to change. 1958 is often seen as the year when Elvis's career shifted from ever upwards to a downhill decline. He'd already been drafted into the US Army by this point, and just three weeks after our featured biathlon race, he would be inducted for basic training with Company A of the 2nd Medium Tank Battalion of 37th Armour. In a few months' time, he'll arrive in Germany. He will also lose his mother, to whom he was very close. And the hiatus in his career was something that was very hard to return from, particularly with the emergence, in a few years, of newer, brasher music styles, mostly coming out of the UK. At around this time, late 1957 to early 1958, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and new recruit George Harrison are preparing for their first trip to a recording studio and working on a tune called Love Me Do. The Bridge on the River Kwai would shortly dominate the year's Academy Awards. It was also the highest grossing movie of the previous year in the UK, France, West Germany, the US and Canada, whilst Italy spent more money going to see the Ten Commandments. Sticking with the theme of 1958 being a bit of a transitional year, it's also marked as the beginning of the French New Wave in cinema with the release of Le Beau Serge during the year. And most importantly of all, for listeners to this podcast at least, 1958 saw the first ever Biathlon World Championships held in Saalfelden, Austria.
Now a quick refresher for you if you're new to biathlon or new to the history of the sport. Before it became biathlon, it was known as military patrol. It was part of the Winter Olympics in 1924 and then an Olympic demonstration sport in 1928 and 1936. It made another demonstration appearance in 1948, but then faded. Perhaps the military overtones were too strong in a post-war time. But the racing carried on. By the mid-50s, Sweden and the Soviet Union had developed a busy calendar of races, and there was a movement to try and bring the sport back. The 1960 Olympics, in what was then Squaw Valley, Utah, in the US, was seen as a good launch pad. To get there, however, the sport needed some practice, and so the World Championships came to be. The event was officially organised by the Austrian Olympic Committee, working with the ski club in Salfelden and the local battalion at the barracks. Those military connections didn't just fade overnight. The location of Salfelden in the Zell am See part of Austria was specifically chosen because it could provide access to both good cross-country skiing and a shooting range. Salfelden also had a long tradition hosting local, state and national winter sports events and the Salzburg Ski Club of the 1950s was home to multiple champions in alpine disciplines. On the 1st of March 1958, the event was officially opened with a parade of 28 biathletes from six nations past the town fire station and the mayor, Adam Pichler. There's an intriguing puzzle here. I wonder if Mayor Adam Pichler of Salfelden was related to Wolfgang Pichler, the Bavarian-born coach of biathlete Magdalena Forsberg and the Swedish and Russian biathlon teams. Pickler is spelled the same way both times. So who knows, maybe three-year-old Wolfgang was there, visiting family and watching the parade. Racing took place on March the 2nd, and when I say racing, I mean one race. The World Championships of 1958 comprised two events, a men's individual over 20 kilometers and a team title but this latter was calculated by adding up the times of races in the individual event. The rules were a little different too. There were four shoots, three in the prone position, and only one in the standing. In addition, the targets were at variable distances. For the first shoot, they were at 250 metres, then 200, then 150 metres, and finally 100 metres. Bear in mind that the standard distance to targets currently in, in biathlon is 50 metres. A missed shot meant two minutes added to your ski time. There were no penalty loops back then. The race set out from the barracks and was a single loop with four shooting ranges and balloons for targets, at least for some of the early shoots. So, to the video. Head on over to YouTube and search for Biathlon 1958. Or you can use the following link, which is tinyurl t-i-n-y-u-r-l dot com slash biathlon 1958. You'll see a video posted by someone called Lucio Saletti, and it's to him that we owe a debt of thanks for finding and digitising the snippet. It's about six minutes long. I'm going to talk through the video a little bit. There's quite a lot of detail to cover, particularly at the start. But you might want to watch it just now. It's just six minutes. And then have it open to watch again and pause and rewind from time to time as we go through the podcast. Now, before we start the video and before we start the racing, I'll encourage you to look out for the Swedish racers. Uh, they tend to be wearing the pale, uh, sort of white-looking outfits. Um, you'll see Ole Gunnarsson wearing number four, 
Sture Olin in number 10, Adolf Wicklund in number 20, and Sven Nielsen in 24. Also watch out for the Soviet team. Uh, they're wearing darker uniforms and have a dark hat with a white stripe around it. Um, in particular, look out for Viktor Bulakov in number 5 and Dmitry Sokolov in number 11. Okay, you ready? Let's watch the first 15 seconds or so of the video and then pause. As the video starts, the first thing to note is the conditions. It's snowing hard and it looks like it has been for a while. There's deep, fresh snow on the ground and it's still coming down. There are people with umbrellas in the crowd, which is something you don't see much these days when we all have nice warm hoods on our jackets. It's hard to tell about visibility, the film is so grainy. But as the races start, it seems hard to see any markers for the track, let alone the targets. But we'll come to those. Let's also notice the crowd. There's a decent crowd in the stands at the race start and finish line, and they've put up some bunting for a sense of celebration. There are also people lining the tracks at the start. Watch as Viljo Pironen of Finland heads off wearing number 12, and see how close people are. In fact, they're so close that this from this angle it's hard to know where the tracks actually go. At about 20 seconds into the video, we get a close-up of some skis, and the clips to hold your boots in place. It's, it's very mechanical, and we'll come back to those clips later. The other equipment thing to notice is that these are thick two-piece suits, no spandex yet. Not everyone's wearing gloves, and there are no goggles in sight. Hats are de rigueur though. At 30 seconds, you'll see the Longines timing and sponsorship. Pause now if you're watching along, because there's going to be a bit of a tangent here. Longines set up in business in the 1860s, and quickly got involved with sports timing, mostly in horse racing. Over time, it became more associated with winter sports, perhaps as part of an aspirational country and alpine lifestyle for the rich and glamorous. By 1924, Longines was the official timekeeper of the Chamonix International Winter Sports Week, basically the Winter Olympics. Think of the start of a ski race. Those electromechanically controlled gates that the skiers break through to start the clock, they date back to 1951. And the accompanying audio beeps that let you know when to start, they're from 1951 too. Quartz technology came into winter sports in 1956. It's strange now watching a video from 1958, which looks so shaky and almost primitive in its organization, to think that there's cutting edge timing technology at work. And so we are off. Racer number 12, Pironen, heads out into the snowy depths. We then see a very relaxed racer number 18, Knut Volt of Norway, no gloves, smiling at the start line before being whisked off into the race by a steward. And then racer number 19, Alexander Gubin of the Soviet Union. Note the bobble hat, which is darker with a white stripe. This is a sign of a Soviet racer if you're watching the video. His glide from the start just doesn't look as, as good as Vold from Norway, who set off just before. And now we're out to a camera position on the tracks. One of the Swedish team in their pale suits comes through a dip in the tracks, between some fence posts. He doesn't look the most stable on his skis. Another of the Soviets appears on a smooth track on the edge of a forest, and there's some nice double polling going on. The time on the video now is about 1 minute 40, and we cut to the range. Here's number 4, Oleg Gunnarsson from Sweden, in a standing posture, which we know from the archive must be the final shoot. According to one report, he's shot clear to this point, and he must be feeling okay. He doesn't seem phased by the straps hanging off his rifle. 
Some racers have a harness like the straps of a backpack. Gunnarsson has a kind of seatbelt arrangement that he can fasten and unfasten when he gets to the range. Now, if you watch biathlon, you'll now notice that Gunnarsson is wobbling like anything. He's struggling for breath. He's taking his time, at least by modern day standards, but he can't quite get to where he wants to be in his posture. And then he shoots. The camera moves in closer for his final shot. And here's where we get to see the recoil. Wow. These are big bore 30.06 military rifles, and they come with a huge amount of recoil to punch you in the shoulder or the jaw if you're not careful. And now for a speedy exit from the range. Well, not quite speedy. Clip your rifle back on, and now clip your skis back on too. Yep, when you come in to shoot, you take your skis off. I guess with that amount of recoil, you don't want to be movable on the snow, you want your feet firmly planted. At about 2 minutes 15 into the video, there's more action from the range. Racer number 7 is coming in. That's Penti Natari of Finland, and you can watch him take off his rifle harness, his skis and his glove. Time is passing, and that Longines clock keeps on ticking away. At 2 minutes 27, number 2 comes into the range, and this might be a moment to pause the video for two reasons. Firstly, number 2 is actually John Moore. He's a Brit and he was known as the father of British biathlon. Army trained, he competed for Great Britain in cross-country and biathlon, competing in three Olympics. He went on to be a technical delegate at four Olympics and became the chair of the IBU's technical committee in the late 1970s. And because we love some sporting trivia, John's father George took part in the fencing event in the 1948 Olympics and John's son Mark was a cross-country skiing Olympian in 1984 perhaps the only British family with three generations in the Olympics. The second reason to have paused at this moment is that John Moore is a left-hander, and that links us to a present-day son of the town of Saalfelden, a certain Simon Ada. And because we can't mention Simon Ada without mentioning that he is 42 years old, let us note that he was born closer in time to the first World Championships than he was to the most recent. Unlike Simon Ada, racer number two, John Moore seems to be having some trouble reloading. And also note that when he pops his harness on, his rifle is pointing downwards rather than up. I'm guessing that's no longer allowed, but it's interesting to see. Back to the video. And at 3 minutes 8, here comes racer number 11, Dmitry Sokolov. He has been flying around the tracks, but is paying the price on the range. He shot 4 out of 5 in the first shoot, but then missed 4 and then 3 on the next two visits to the range. Our camera position is behind him. But look beyond him to the cameras that are almost literally in his face. The pressure from that, and the intensity of his ski speed, mean that he shoots just two out of five this time in. Eleven misses overall for number eleven, one of the pre-race favourites. That's 22 minutes added to his time. Back out to the tracks and some demonstrations of classic technique. It's all classic in 1958. Skating had been used in cross-country competitions since the 1930s, but it wouldn't really become popular until the 1980s. Racer number 9, Larry Damon of the USA, is looking a bit tired. Number 10, Steyr Olin of Sweden, looks both tired and distracted by what's going on around him. Larry Damon has a nice bit of trivia attached. After competing in four Olympics and running the Boston Marathon in a handy 2 hours 35 minutes, he became a ski instructor at the Trapp Family Lodge in Vermont the Trapp family being the Von Trapps, as fictionalised in The Sound of Music. Back to the race video. 
At about 4 minutes 45, we return to the range with number 19, Alexander Gubin of the Soviet Union. Again, we get a shot of the physical stress. The struggle for air is real before he starts to shoot. Fatigue is setting in, and there's a stumble on the way out of the range. And now the Swedes are in the range. Racer number 20. This is Adolf Wicklund, and he's in with a shout. He's been shooting the same as number 4, Gunnarsson, and is competitive on his skis. He's catching his breath as he steps out of those skis. Nothing is rushed. Look how solid his left hand is under his rifle. It's five out of five, and now it's a ski race. And at five minutes 45 in the video, we go to the finish line. Here's Adolf Wicklund crossing to a strong welcome from the crowd, but we don't yet know the results. The ski times are in thanks to that timing system, but the shooting scores have to be adjudicated by the judges on the range and tallied up. The Soviet Union team had been fastest over the snow, pushing hard despite the conditions, but they shot poorly in comparison to the steadier Swedes. And here we are at the post-race interviews with the winning Swedish team. Adolf Wicklund, number 20, came in first, shooting 17 out of 20, in a time of 1 hour, 33 minutes and 44 seconds. Bear in mind that each missed shot accounts for two minutes added to your time, so his ski time was around 1 hour 27. By contrast, the highest placed 17 out of 20 in this year's World Championships was Sebastian Stalder, who came 16th in a time of 56 minutes and 14 seconds. With Wickland in the post-match interview, if you like, are number four, Ole Gunnjörsson, who finished 17 out of 20 and just 29 seconds behind Wickland, and the other members of the Swedish team. Stara Olam was also 17 out of 20, but two minutes off the pace, and Sven Nilsson, who came in eighth. This group took the relay title, ahead of the Soviet Union and Norway. There's some interesting tactical stuff that might have happened. In the warm-up the previous day, the Swedes had pushed very hard on the tracks and shot well. Observers from the Soviet camp had allegedly told the Soviet team that they should go hard on their skis, which led to their downfall on the range, while the Swedes changed tactics to go much more patiently on race day. Some things don't change. Sven Nielsen was in contention for a higher finish, but missed three on the last shoot. Apparently the custom in Sweden was to be quiet during the shooting, but the Austrian crowd were more involved. Nielsen said later to the media, the people's cheers misled me, and I got out of rhythm during the shooting. There are two sources of data for the results of this race, and this is where a bit of detective work and trust comes in. Biathlon.com.ua has a results list, but the blog post by Sven Nielsen's daughter has a photo of the original score sheet and timing sheet signed by many of the competitors. You can find a link to this in the transcript of this episode over on the Podbean link, skishootrepeat.podbean.com. The order of the race is the same and the timings, but the shooting results are different. One thing that is consistent is that Heinz Hartling of Austria really did miss all 20 shots and he didn't even finish last. Adolf Wicklund was a slightly unexpected winner of the race. He'd competed quite lightly in the run-up to the tournament, to the extent that he almost didn't make the team. But it's said that the conditions suited him because of his reliable shooting. He wasn't the fastest on the tracks, that was Dmitry Sokolov of the Soviet Union, who was speedy through the deep snow but missed those 11 targets so could only finish ninth. The final podium place behind Wicklund and Gnerison went to Sokolov's teammate Viktor Butkov, 
who finished just over a minute behind Vickland with six misses. Vickland was 36 years old when he won the World Championships. He was in the Swedish Air Force and competed with one of their biathlon teams. He also competed in the 1959 World Championships in Courmayeur, Italy, coming second in the relay, and went to the 1960 Olympics in Utah, where he finished 19th in the individual race. Sadly, Vickland died in 1970, aged just 49. On the Podbean page for this episode, you'll find a link to a transcript, which includes further links to some of the resources I've mentioned here, the race video itself, the blog by Sven Nielsen's daughter, and a video from Klaus Danzer, long-standing employee of the Salfeld and Ski Club, sharing his memories of the event. The Klaus Danzer video was very kindly translated for me by a member of the biathlon community on Twitter. Thank you so much, the one known as at FIFA Ultimate 11. Klaus Danzer remembers the spectacle of the race, the award ceremony in front of the former fire station, and the defence minister giving a speech. He also notes that biathlon now comes to Hockfiltzen most years, which is very close to Salfelden, keeping the traditional connection every time the sport comes back to Austria. One last thing. If you listen to this podcast during the biathlon season, or follow Ski Shoot Repeat on Twitter, you'll know that I occasionally pay tribute to the biathletes with the best facial hair. Antonin Gigonat was a star this year on both counts, with a consistent top 10 racing record and a very neat and tidy beard season long. Past masters of the beard include Switzerland's Benny Vega. And in researching this week's podcast, what did I find? Well, Salfelden, home of the inaugural Biathlon World Championships, also played host in 2015 to the World Beard and Moustache Championships. Congratulations to Madison Rowley, who won the Full Beard Natural Prize, Norbert Topf, who took home the Freestyle Beard Trophy, and Johnny King for his prize-winning Dali Moustache. This year's event will be held in June in Berghausen, Germany, and as an inclusive event, also features competitions for women. I can honestly say that I did not expect this week's podcast to end this way. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on Twitter at Ski Shoot Repeat. Share your thoughts on the video that we watched this week and any particular races that you'd be interested in us exploring in the future. This has been the first of a series of biathlon backstories and I plan to look at more races from the history of our sport and explore what was happening in the world around that time, as well as some of the competitors, the winners and losers and the state of the sport at the time. So if there are races you'd really like to hear about, let me know and I'll see what I can do. Thanks for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.